Hello, my name is Lindsay Sarah Krasnoff, and I'm here with you for another episode of the Global Sport Conversations podcast on behalf of SISD and SOAS. I'm joined today by Herwig Demshar, SVP of International Business Development for Powder Corporation. Herwig, I'm thrilled that you could join us today, and congratulations on hosting a terrific Women's Alpine World Cup at Killington. You've had a fascinating career in the ski racing world, first as head coach of the Austrian national ski teams, then coach of the U.S. women's alpine team. You've served as director of alpine sports for several international competitions, including the Turin and the Salt Lake Winter Games. And now you're with one of the largest ski resort operators in North America. But tell me, how did you originally come to the world of alpine ski racing? My father was actually quite a famous soccer player. I mean, uh, and he thought when I was younger, that I have no talent in soccer. We call it, you have two left legs if you're righty. And he said, no, Abby, you're not going to go and play soccer just because I did. Uh, you're going to go and ski. So he took me, and I'm an only child. He took me uh, skiing, and he uh, made me join up to a ski club in Austria, and that got me, myself, into ski racing. And, you know, it's just it was just a lot of social fun to being within a club. And then, you know, I got... I, started skiing more seriously. I never became super good. I was okay. I was once an NCAA champion in Austria. That's comparable to that what we do here in the United States. Uh, but then in the end, you know, my, my, my parents didn't have the money to get me uh, into the higher level, to get me all the equipment that you need to be competitive. And uh, I decided to finish my university and then I became a teacher. And uh, I didn't like teaching because I've, you know, I was teaching in a high school and in a college, actually, in my hometown. And um, I just did not like the environment. You had to spend so much energy to uh, convince the kids to participate uh, in the classes. And then for whatever reason, based on my history in skiing and having also the coach's education and everything you need, um, I was called by a coach from the Austrian ski team that was at that time kind of the B level, we call the Europa Cup level, and he said, Harry, would you like to join me being a conditioning coach and then also being a ski coach? And then I thought, because when you're a teacher in Austria, it's it's a government job, so you basically are secure. You never can lose the job unless you do something crazy. I thought I maybe just do it for a year, and then, you know, get a nice uniform. You're with high-end athletes. There's no need to convince them to show up on time to do their training because they know for each athlete there's another 10 athletes that want to get the job on the Austrian team. And I did it for a year and had so much fun. And then 17, 17 years later, I, I actually stopped coaching because our kids were getting a little older and I wanted to be home more. But this is kind of what dragged me into alpine ski. So ski racing was being a coach. It was so much fun working with the athletes. Oh, yeah, very much. And so it sounds like from from your early days in the field, it has been very much about knowledge exchange and um, helping to impart knowledge to others. No, that, that, that's correct. You know, and the the uh, the, the most fascinating thing uh, when you coach, especially then later on, I was coaching at the highest levels, you know, was coaching at the Olympic Games and with the best athletes in Austria and also in the United States. And we were as teams very successful. But the, the, for me, the most fascinating thing is that you create a relationship with an athlete and you fine tune their skill sets and their technique of skiing, but also the, you know, emotional and, 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 and sports intellectual skills. 
And uh, it's really nice to see them become successful and stand on a podium and win a gold medal at the Olympics. So that was, it's, all, it's almost like a, a little drug as a coach that drags you in there. And you go from race to race, and then you hope to be successful. And uh, when you are, it's, it's super fun. <laughs> Terrific. Um, and so you certainly coached at the highest levels on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. And I'd like to drill down a little bit more. As an Austrian-American, you've lived and coached on both sides of the Atlantic. And how do you explain your two countries to others, especially your skiers, helping to translate the cultural differences? It's actually, in some ways, super benign. Um, I'll give you one example. I didn't really like it, but when I was head coach for the U.S. women's ski team and we came to Europe, uh, the first thing we had to stop was to have a at McDonald's to have a burger. And the reason why I'm saying that is, and I never understood it, the reason why I'm saying that it's just a simple thing of food between the United States and the way how you live in Austria and Europe uh, is sometimes a huge challenge for the athletes. Uh, and it sounds totally stupid, but it means a lot. So when we traveled and I had to learn it in the beginning, um, I always called ahead of, uh, of our camps to the hotels and to the chefs and said, and I had my fusion do that too, to be sure that we have the right menu, that our athletes from the United States um, could enjoy the food. And it's a basic thing, but it's very important. And uh, the the as a language barrier, especially for the U.S. athletes, if they don't speak German or French or Italian, uh, that's difficult. There's actually a lot of people, if you look at Lindsay Mon, uh, she has really learned and she speaks fluent German, and it helps a lot to promote her. The language is a huge problem, and so you need to explain to the athletes when you coach the Austrian team what are the challenges going to be in the United States. The same thing is the housing, the foods, you know, the travel, the distance, distances that you drive from race to race is so different um, than um, uh, being in Europe. In Europe, the ways are way shorter. So you spend a lot of time as a coach to explain what the challenges are, and uh, in the end, you know, only the athletes that can handle that, both sides, either Austrian or American, uh, only the athletes that can handle these cultural differences, they stay with uh, they stay with the sport. People that don't like to travel, people that don't like to eat different food, people that are not open to learn from other cultures, uh, they normally drop out of the system. It's too tiring for them. And I don't know if that answers your question, but it's it's kind of a benign little thing. But I can tell you food and bedding and hotel rooms and TV channels, if they can watch or not, and the way you travel and um, the lift infrastructures, how you get up on the hill and the, the, also the snow. There's so much different. And, you know, my athletes from the Austrian team always said when the lift is in the United States, uh, you know, have a great day. They said, why do these people talk to me? Because we in Europe are basically very grumpy in the morning. And it takes a while to understand that it's just easier to live together. So I don't know if that answers the question, but, um, yeah, you spend a lot of time explaining both cultures. Um, and, you know, it's not only Austrians. If the Americans come or if the U.S. team comes to Europe, you go into even there from each valley, the culture is different. The language is different. You go into Switzerland, the food is different again. So it, uh, it takes a while. Um, so especially with the U.S. athletes, when you come to Europe, you have to be patient until – in their development, also in ski racing, until they get used to these different setups. Uh, we always said, you know, there was years ago, they're still in Garmisch, but in Kirchen in Germany, there's a 
as a U.S. Air Force, a U.S. Uh, Army base. And that was always kind of the place for the U.S. athletes to go because they could buy their food, or I would always call it junk food that they liked. They could wash their clothing there with a dish or with a, whatever it's called, the, the soap or the, the powder that they were used to from the States. And they could have their Budweiser beer, the coaches, and would sit and watch the Super Bowl. My first year coaching the U.S. ski team, I lost my whole coaching staff for two days and I had no idea where they were. And they were hiding away in the U.S. Army base to watch the Super Bowl. So it was actually pretty, it was pretty interesting. Um, so that's a long answer and maybe not that what you wanted to hear, but, uh, uh, there's a big difference and it takes a lot of patience to, to, for the athletes to get used to. Yeah, that's a that's a really fascinating anecdote. You just lost your entire coaching staff to the Super Bowl, um, but it, it really very much does kind of um, get at this this next question in terms of in what ways is cultural understanding important uh, to the ski race circuit? And it sounds like at the very basic level, um, having this understanding of the other and other cultures and how they operate is critical for just getting skiers to stay and remain competitive on the circuit. Yes, and it's also uh, the length of uh, the stay, especially for U.S. athletes. So if, if you work with the Austrian team, uh, you know, you, you spend the longest period of time that you're away from home is just in the beginning. So, for example, the athletes that were over here in Killington right now, the first races uh, in, in North America, they start coming over here already three weeks before. So they train in different locations, for example, in Colorado at Copper Mountain, uh, where there's a speed training venue or a tech training venue. Uh, they spend three weeks there to train. Then they go to races, and there's normally slalom, giant slalom, so tech races, and then they're the next stop is in Canada in Lake Louis where there's a, a speed race. So it's basically two weeks. And then if you count everything together, they're gone for six weeks. And then they are home. And then, you know, it, almost every weekend when they race in Europe, they can, be, can go home on Sunday, have two days at home, and then go back to the next event. The U.S. key team, some of the athletes are gone for two or three months. And it, that's very difficult if you, if you can't adjust to the, to the way how the people live in whatever country in Europe you pick, you're going to stay. Most of the, uh, either Canadian or the US team, they have kind of a home base or a way base where they hang. And, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, the timing is, is way more brutal for the North American teams than for the European teams. We talk a lot about sports role as a bridge across cultures um, and how people-to-people exchanges that organically occur in and around the sports terrain on and off the piste um, helps to create better understandings um, of people and demystify the other. And you know, certainly in the past year, I, I've read quite a bit about how uh, U.S. racer Michaela Schifrin has developed a, a personal friendship with uh, one of her French uh, counterparts, Tessa Worley, and how the two have kind of uh, their friendship um, on and off the circuit has helped both of them uh, kind of get through that. Um, in your experience, what are the merits of this sports diplomacy? You know, that these people-to-people uh, exchanges where you're learning about other cultures, other systems, other political structures through your competitors um, or those you meet in and around the circuit? And what kind of benefits uh, does the, do these exchanges have as a result? Yeah, it's, it's uh, I mean, it's public anyway, but in, in, in Michaela's case, it's, she's not only friends with a French ski racer, 
with Teresa Worley. She was, I think her boyfriend is also a very famous French um, slalom chess athlete. Uh, and that happens. And the reason why I'm saying that is you have to imagine this sport like a circus. And we call it, you know, we sometimes say it's the white circus. But it's a group of people um, at the highest level. And it's about on the women's tour, the men's tour. Women's tour is a little smaller than the men, but not a lot. But if you count all the athletes, all the, uh, the coaches and the medical staff and the physios that travel and also the technicians that tune the skis, um, you're, you know, but like we had here, we have a hotel here in Killington where we had the World Cup race and the hotel is full with the whole teams. And so you have about 300 people that travel with you plus minus. And, you know, this is like a Tower of Babel. There's all the languages spoken. It's good or bad English or Italian, German, and everybody communicates with each other. And the, when people think there's huge rivalry from the outside, yes, it's just between the start and the finish. But you'll see when you go to the dinner areas or dinner tables, you'll see a mixed team sitting together because based on the way how people like each other and like to travel with each other, uh, teams travel separate when they go because it has to be organized like this. But when they're together at one spot over the race weekend, when they're together at places where they train, uh, there's a total, it's a total international vibe and it's not driven by the nation. It's driven uh, if the people like each other. And I, I remember a time when I was head coach in Austria, we really, we coaches and the athletes had a really good relationship with the Swiss team. And if you know how Switzerland and Austria is kind of slightly competitive as cultures in Europe, the Austrian media was always asking me, why would you train with the Swiss team? Because these are your biggest competitors. Mm-hmm. And I said, we do it because we like the coaches. We work together. We train together. The other Swiss coaches show up on time. They help. Everybody picks up the stuff when we're done with the training and it's, and we're having a beer after dinner, uh, uh, at the bar. So we, it's, it's, uh, but we didn't maybe train with the French because maybe the French were not on time or what, but everybody picks their friends. But the main point of the story is really, did you travel like a circus from place to place? And it's totally not driven by nations. It's really driven by if the people like each other and there's a lot of cultural exchange. And based on that, and it's maybe now the right answer is, it makes it easier for athletes when they miss home if they have friends on the tour to spend the time away from home for so long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know that's one of the really fascinating things I find about the the white circus, as it were, is that it is one of these very, very global sports that's hard to break down uh, unless you're, you know, those 48 seconds on the race course mm-hmm. into a an, nation-by-nation um, edge. And certainly this fits under knowledge exchange, both in the cultural side, but I'm sure also on the technical side in terms of if you're training together, the Austrian and the Swiss teams or other teams or individual athletes with different coaches, you're you're using the same techniques and not necessarily a Austrian style or a Swiss style per se. It is. Uh, so let's, let's do that from a, from a technical perspective, like ski technical perspective. You can see where people grew up skiing in Europe, in what country, or what coach was coaching. Uh, it's, it is, but it's a, you know, it's a geek thing. It's like you have to be a connoisseur of the sport. You have to be at the highest level for coach to see where do they come from. And I can tell you that you can absolutely see from a distance if 
the athlete comes and trained in Switzerland or in Austria. The Austrians have a, almost a little bit more of a different technique than the Swiss, for sure, than the Canadians and the U.S. team. That is driven by the culture's education that is existing in the different countries, but also by a philosophy of a different technique that you want to ski. Uh, the technology side of the skis and the boots and the bindings and the race suits, whatever you do, uh, if there's something new developed, uh, the teams, the high-level teams, uh, they are very, very careful sharing that. Mm-hmm. But then in the end, you're competing on the same race hill, so everybody has access visually to see what people have, mm-hmm. what they're skiing on. But there's so much stuff from a VEX perspective or the angle of the edges or what you, how you tune the boots that we call it the setup, uh, that is not so easy to see from the outside. Mm-hmm. You got to really take the ski or the boot and, and check it very close by. I mean, you watch the Formula One, but sometimes when the race cars come back after the race, there's race, the driver sometimes check. The guy from Mercedes goes to Ferrari and checks out, you know, what, what, what mm-hmm. the car looks. But, uh, so that's, that's one side. And then the other exchange is, and it's maybe interesting. And if you call, I call it transfer of knowledge or, or, uh, is that coaches, for example, from the Swiss team have French coaches and the Italians have an Austrian coach in there or, the Austrian team has a Slovenian coach, or a Norwegian team has a German coach, or the German team has an Austrian coach. So the co- uh, the teams are not solely coached by their own nation coaches. And there's a lot of transfer of knowledge happening. Uh, that because if you, you carry whatever you learn as a coach, you carry it to another nation. That's, that's what I did. And I was for 14 years with the Austrian team in different levels when I started to coach the U.S. team. Uh, the boss of the Austrian ski team, when we started to win with U.S. team, the boss, the boss from the Austrian team came to me and he said, you giving away all the knowledge that we trained you for 14 years, huh? we spent all the money to make you a good coach. So there's a, there's a negative side on that too. Well, you know, it's, so it seems like you, your career in ski racing has really been kind of a, a master class in education in a wide variety of different ways, from the human to the culture to the technical and beyond. Um, given that, what has been one of the most impactful things you've learned um, through your career in skiing that, that was perhaps the least expected? My biggest surprise personally on the good side was that um, – um, I had so much fun doing this job and because if we build a nice relationship with the athletes and with the coaches and whoever travels, also the technicians, um, it's like being with a family. And I have to say, actually, four years with the U.S. key team were very special for me because the team is smaller, way smaller than the Austrian team that I had to coach. And you can emotionally get closer to the athletes. In Austria, you are as a head coach, you are you have to be in a distance because you have to at least three or four times a week to tell an athlete you will not be allowed to race on the weekend. It's like a, a football coach to say either you're in the lineup or you're not. Mm-hmm. So there's a, it's, it's way more, way more difficult. But, uh, now in the end, you know, for me, I really enjoyed it and, and it surprised me that, uh, I could draw so much fun of working and traveling with these kids. And the other thing is you always stay young. You know, you drive for eight hours and you always know the newest music and you always know the newest topics that the kids are talking about. And uh, it was it was really a lot of fun. Keeps you very relevant culturally. 
Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your experiences and perspectives with us. See you next time for another edition of Global Sports Conversations.